Solomon. And uh, today I want to look at the last couple verses of Ecclesiastes. I did step out of Hebrews, of course. Uh, you know of all the things that have been going on the last couple of weeks with uh, <clears throat> the passing of my father and uh, all the details that you have to do to um, arrangements you have to make, the, the little sleep that you get when something like that happens. And, uh, but like I said, the, the great comfort that I had through all of it and I have today and every day is that my father was a strong believer, uh, passionate about the Lord, loved the word of God, and that's the only hope we have. That's it. There's nothing else. I was trying to search for something else to find hope in. I really was. And you know what? I found no, no hope in anything except Christ because he's the only one who tells us what is going to happen, right? Uh, he's the only one who's defeated death and Satan. He's the only one who's uh, taken the judgment of, for those who, who know him as Savior. So really, there's nothing uh, death can do to take what my father had away from him, right? Or any believer and so that's the hope I have. And maybe for the first time, I, I, I saw that hope in a new way, in a powerful way. Uh, and I was able to share that with others in my family who had no hope. Remember, we don't have to grieve as people who have no hope, right? Thessalonians tells us we have hope, right? We don't have to grieve like everybody. Death is not the end. It's the beginning, in a way, of eternal life with Christ. And so that prodded me to think a little bit more about death, which prodded me to think a little bit more about judgment. So this morning, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes, and we're going to look at the last couple verses, and I, I just wanted to do something that is related to judgment, especially the judgment that you await. All people await. It says, look at verse number 9 of chapter 12, last chapter of Ecclesiastes, it says, in addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God, keep his commandments, because this applies to every person, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or or evil. Now, verse number 12 about the writing of many books, there's always, if you go into any, any libraries, uh, books are coming in every single day that people have written. And matter of fact, it's easier to write a book today than any probably time in history. You can get pretty much anybody to publish it, and so it gets into the, a library somewhere. But the point that he's making, which is incredible, is that you can learn and learn and learn and learn and learn and not learn the most crucial things you need to learn about life. And he simply says here, in fact, the concluding message of the book of Ecclesiastes is sum summarized in two points. Fear God and keep his commandments, right? Fear God and keep his commandments. So in, in a very real way, the word of God is going to supply to us the knowledge we need for the most important questions. 
In fact, the order of the two points is important because conduct in life is derived from worship. That is, a knowledge of God leads to obedience. Not the other way around. Fear, the fear of God is is the road of knowing the most important things on this side of eternity. Like Proverbs 1 says, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of knowledge, right? Fools despise wisdom in instruction. So see, the fear of God is a grand subject for the minds and hearts of God's children. Yet the fear of God is not only absent from society, but it, also, it is also missing from popular theology today. Uh, a lot of times people refer to God as a casual best friend or some kind of cozy chum. Uh, a God who has nothing better to do than smile upon humanity and endorsing every daydream that a person has and every self-centered pursuit that they can think of. Well, that's not who he is at all, is he? He's a holy God. So the great indictment for every generation, not just for ours, from ev- for every generation is simply this. There's no fear of God before the eyes of the people. And when there is no fear of God, anything happens. Anything could take place. Proverbs 36.1 simply says, transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. This is... The- the passage that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 3, where he goes on this long list about there's none righteous, no, not one, and he ends with this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So why do you have chaos? Why do you have the things going on in the world that are going on in the the world? It's because people don't really fear God. They don't really fear God. A balanced definition of the fear of God found in wisdom literature in Scripture is it really contains at least two facts. Number one, fear as a sense of terror. And then also, secondly, fear as a sense of awe and reverence. Both of them go together. When I was preaching through Ecclesiastes, uh, a, a definition that was put out uh, in conclusion of the matter of uh, the fear of God was to fear God is to be afraid enough to care what he has to say. And to be humble enough to submit to his authority. They, they both go together. That I, I do fear God, a knee-knocking fear. Because of who he is, he's an almighty God. He can do anything he wants. And yet, at the same time, those who come to know God through Christ by faith, they still have that fear, but their fear is kind of balanced out by a humble submission to his authority because they begin to know and discover from the word of God who he is. So today, I would like to revisit this sobering topic. Uh, And I think this topic is more serious than growing old, more serious than the grave, more serious than the greatest leveler of man, and that's death itself. And you may say, what is it? Well, it's the very... uh, subject of judgment where it says in verse 14 of ecclesiastes 12 it says for god will bring every act to judgment everything which is hidden whether it is good or evil so now this topic that i'm taking up probably is least talked about even than death it's the second time that the preacher 
the Koeleth in, 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 uh, in Ecclesiastes, the one who, who's making proclamation here in Ecclesiastes, is considering the subject of judgment. So let's go back to the first time he used it. Look at chapter 3 and verse number 12 of Ecclesiastes. And, he, and you notice in, the, in this context, he, the way he views judgment is that he relates it back to God and makes a contrast between the God-fearer and the non-God-fearer. Well, actually, it's, it's chapter 8. Did I say 3? Um, chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes. Look at verse 12. It says, Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear him openly. So he says, first of all, that it's going to be well with the God-fearer. The thought of the scarcity of human justice within the context here of Ecclesiastes caused the preacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes, which is Solomon, to reflect on a justice that would come from somewhere else. Not a justice that could be found here, because really little justice is found on this side of eternity. So he knows that things will go well with those who fear God, but not with those who are wicked. So the God-fearers are those who revere and worship God, who obey Him and live continually under His watchful eye. As Proverbs chapter 16, verse 6 says, by loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. So it's the very fear of God that keeps one away from evil. And then Proverbs 19 says, the fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. So someone who fears God in a way in which they are worshiping God, they know the true and living God, they can rest assured that that fear will cause them to live properly and will also cause them to uh, sleep soundly and not fear what's on the other side of death in fact look at verse 12 of chapter 8 of ecclesiastes notice at the end of the verse it says who fear him openly the the hebrew word pana in this passage means face it means those who live before the face of god so here's a righteous person a god-fearing person who lives their life before the face of of the creator before the face of the ruler before the face of the judge and those are the ways god is used in ecclesiastes as a creator as the ruler as the judge it doesn't usually go past that in ecclesiastes because remember he's looking at life under the sun without poking his head above the sun to see what god's doing and to see what god's about but he he can't do it he can't fully and completely describe life without pulling God into this, to this uh, situation to give it some clarity, to give it some hope. And so that's what you find going on all throughout Ecclesiastes. And so the truth remains for the skeptic that the time for even-handed judgment and vengeance is not in the present. Injustice in this world is woefully present. We see it everywhere. It is on the news every single day. And people say, where's God? That's what they conclude. 
They conclude, where's God when the tragedy happens, right? And they go on this tirade of, of, of how come God didn't prevent this or that? Well, see, that's not the point. The point is that Ecclesiastes is there's going to be times and seasons. And in the times and seasons, there's going to be peace. There's going to be war. There's going to be all kinds of opposites of things going on. It's not our job to question why. Our job is really to find out how can I respond to the circumstance in a way that honors God. That's, I can't do anything about the circumstance. But I can respond to it in a way that honors God. I don't have to respond to it like a fool. I don't have to respond to respond to it like a naive person who doesn't know anything i don't have to respond to it like a scoffer i can respond to it like a god-fearer who says okay i can't do anything about my circumstances but i sure can respond to them in a way that honors god notice also in verse 13 of chapter 8 of ecclesiastes it says it will not be well for the wicked but it will not be well for the evil man it says in verse 13 so it's the exact opposite here why? Judgment will come. That's the point. And then in verse 13 it says, And he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. Why can't he lengthen his days? Because death is coming. Judgment will come. Death will come. So the picture here is as the day ends, the shadows gradually lengthen. That's what usually happens. Thus the lives of the wicked will not grow longer as they come closer to the end of their days. It will not be well with the wicked. And the reason why it will not grow longer is because they don't fear God. And if they don't fear God and they lived in a way in which they didn't fear God, then what do they have to face? They have to face the judgment of God. That's the point he's making in, in, throughout uh, Ecclesiastes, at least in this section and then in the last. But that's not the thinking of most people, is it? People do often have a mindset that they will somehow be exempt from judgment. Now, this mindset, I think, exists because of a fundamental truth that they don't really believe in God. At least they don't believe in the God of the Bible or the God as revealed in creation or in Holy Scripture. You hear people say all the time, listen, well, I think... I think people die and go to the grave and it's all over. We die like just a dog would die or a cat would die or any animal would die. It's all over. We decay in the grave and and our existence is done. People believe that, don't they? Some people say, well, I think good people, all good people go to heaven. If you've been good, then you go to heaven. That's what they conclude. And, And they bank on that. They live their life according to that. Some, think, some say, well, I think people never die. They just go, uh, they just come back as something else. You know, that's the reincarnation people. Uh, you come back as, as something else or you come back at, uh, depending on how you live your life, you come back either better or worse uh, into this life. Or some people think, oh, well, I don't think about it, they say. I don't think about judgment. And the reason why I don't think about judgment is because I've been a fairly religious person. And I believe God will forgive me. I hope. They always put that at the end. Based on their own standard of belief, they think they have accurately assessed how God will respond to them in the end. The most popular comment that I hear today is, 
I don't believe a loving God would send anyone to a hell of torment. That's what you hear all the time. These statements, all that they reveal is a lack of understanding among humans in general about the character of God. They misunderstand the judgment of God. So before us today really is a telling truth about God's judgment that the preacher kept saying all through Ecclesiastes, all is vanity, right? But when he comes to the end, in light of judgment, in light of the judgment of God, we find out that nothing is vain. Nothing is futile. Nothing is empty. Everything matters. Everything matters. Why? Because we're going to have to stand before God. So not only is judgment a thought we like to avoid because it makes us think of penalties and executions and all kinds of frightening experiences, but it's also a very complex matter in Scripture. It's, It's a very important matter in Scripture. So my concern this morning is our personal that our personal attitudes would, at least in general, be take on a perspective of judgment that is shaped and adjusted by Scripture itself. There's no way I can do that in one message, but at least I can put before you some things the Bible does say about judgment and then come back and look at some passages in Ecclesiastes. Well, just some scriptural teaching about judgment. The first thing is this, that the fall, the fall of man made judgment for us, for every human being, a reality. We, we find this back in Genesis chapter 3, that God first pronounced judgment upon mankind after sin entered into the world. And in a sense, all judgment lead back to God's proclamation of judgment at the fall. What did he say at the fall? He said, then he said to the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate, the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And then it says, and to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And then he said to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There's the first foundation of judgment, that sin not only brought forth death, but sin brought forth judgment. That because of sin, life's going to be hard. There's nothing easy about life. Is there? I don't find it to be easy. As a believer, knowing the truth that God's taught me, I don't find it to be, I still don't find it to be easy. 
when somebody comes up to you and says, why did this person die? That's not an easy question to answer. You can answer it scripturally, but usually your scriptural answer is not satisfying to them. They want the person back. But you can't do that, right? It's, it's an impossible thing. So see, judgment starts at the fall because we are children of Adam. That judgment, that curse has fallen upon us. So life is difficult. It is hard. It's, it's, we have to struggle through it. But we have this promise also concerning judgment that God demonstrates great patience before he brings judgment. We find that all over Scripture, before God brought the flood, he waited and waited and waited. He had Noah preach year after year, right? He was a man of righteousness, and he preached. And God warned them and warned them and warned them and warned them. He gave them plenty of opportunity uh, to repent and believe the man of righteousness and trust in God to be saved. And they could have gotten on that ark, too, and been rescued from the flood just like nahem the prophet nahem says in chapter one and verse number three a clear statement of god's patience coupled with a warning and it says this that the lord is slow to anger and great in power and the lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished see god's patience is still slow it tells us in peter that his long suffering is, is, is being, in a sense, patient with people so they would come and repent and believe in him by faith. He's waiting. He's giving you time. He's giving people time to repent. That's what God does. So God's patience in judgment is long-suffering. Also, God's patience is not whimsical, nor does he forget a single detail. That brings me back to Hebrews chapter, Hebrews chapter, excuse me, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, in verse number 14, where he says, everything which is hidden, that in the judgment, I will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, everything which is hidden. That's, that means God's piercing judgment. Each of us has some kind of secretiveness about us, and we wish it would never be exposed. We, we desire not to be found out. We, we desire to kept, to be, to, whatever we have private to be kept private. But before God, there's no secrets that can be kept. There's nothing that can be hidden. The distinction between what is public and private collapses in front of God's judgment. See, God will reach back into a person's life to retrieve buried memories and half-forgotten desires, and he will bring these to an accurate and an utterly faithful assessment that every secret thing will be taken into account and a verdict passed accordingly. I like that passage of Scripture in Hebrews that I'm going to finally get to, is where it says, and the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. But then it says this in verse 13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare 
before the eyes of him in whom we have to do, right? So everything is bare. Everything is open before God. And then in verse 14 of Ecclesiastes 12, it says, whether good or evil, that God has a discerning judgment. He can determine whether your motive, your act was evil or good. You can't even do that. I can't even do that. We can't determine someone's scruples, the motives on why they do things. But here in Scripture, God is able to do that because the human heart, remember, is so wicked. We tend to be soft on sin, especially our own. And there tends to be really a failure to analyze the real character of our own heart. But remember, according to Scripture, sin is hatred. It's a hatred of God. It's a hatred of God's ways. And it's really a desire to reshape God into your own image, right? So you can control him and mold him and guide him, right? But in Scripture, of course, that's idolatry. That's what I just described. Matter of fact, if it was up to us, we would want to banish God from the universe. I mean, we throw him out of the public schools. We throw him out of government, right? We bring up all these laws to keep God out of everything, right? What? That's just man trying to push God out. That's what we would do. That would be the conclusion. But, see, our standard of sin comes from God himself, where God's wrath is exercised, exercised against sin, and not merely because of certain actions that have some unfortunate social consequence but because of the intrinsic moral character of sin because of its violation of god's law and it it finds us out as being in defiance of god himself and god's own righteousness see we all we all committed offenses against a righteous and a just god and people are responsible for their own sin and god's judgments reveal that all people are rebels before him every single person so see the question that i need to ask and answer biblically at this point is will judgment delay will 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 judgment's delay affect its certainty or severity uh well the answer to that question of course is no and again our judgment surely is certain in this verse it says that god will bring verse 14 every act to judgment that god's judgment is just uh, because god is just that he is the divine lawgiver. whether the law is revealed in scripture or known through the conscience god will judge in a at a standard that no one will be able to wiggle out of it paul tells us in romans in this they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them and then it says on the day when according to my gospel god will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So, see, our judgment is certain. Again, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 17, it says, I said to myself, 
God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. For a time for every matter and for every deed is there. See, the thought here is that God will set things right and the blameless and blameworthy will get what they deserve from the hand of God. But when and how that will happen is unknown to us. We're not given any details on the when of it or the how of it even. And because it's not known to us what happens is that people conclude, well, God's judgment will never happen. It's taken so long. I don't see it anywhere. Things happen and God doesn't seem to be there. His judgment, his justice don't seem to drop when it should drop, when I think it ought to drop. But, see, that's, we can't conclude that, that judgment would never come because God doesn't hold judgment at the moment. Because God will hold judgment on every single thing that's ever happened. But he will do it in his time. Uh, when he decides. And it will be a fair judgment. That this judgment is entirely in the hand of God. And it is not for mortals to decide whatsoever. So that means that there is a final judgment of God. That cannot be avoided and cannot be altered. It cannot be changed. That you can close your mind to it. You can forget about it, but you cannot hide from it. It is fixed as anything could be. In fact, judgment is as inevitable as death. That's why Hebrews writes, it is appointed once for man to die and then what? Judgment. They go together. And then there's another thing about God's judgment. It's that there, God shows no partiality at all within judgment. Uh, the character of the examiner, God himself, because he is just and because he judges justly, his final standard will be right. Like Deuteronomy tells us, the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness. And without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Now, I would like you to turn to a passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 13, because I think this passage of Scripture possibly describes the, uh, God being uh, showing no partiality in a very, very clear way, where it says in Luke chapter 13, in verse number 1, this is when, of course, uh, the people were questioning Jesus about some things they were a little confused about. And it says in Luke chapter 13, verse number 1, Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him, that's Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, before I read on, this is a truly a hard saying from Jesus. The question is raised from the people, what about the people? that Pilate slaughtered and the innocent people that were killed by the falling tower. That's what's going on in this context here. Where was God in these events? The people thought, how could God allow innocent people to suffer? How could the people in the World Trade Center incident, who just were going to work and were planning on to do a day's work, 
were they greater sinners than the people who didn't go into that building and, and those people who weren't at the Pentagon that day and those people who weren't in that plane that went down to Pennsylvania? Were they greater sinners because they were part of that tragedy, part of that event that happened? Well, look what Jesus says to the people because all those categories fit into this. In verse 2 of Luke chapter 13, it says, And he answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Look at verse 3. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It is showing the, that God is not partial at all. And then verse 4. Or do you suppose that those 18 whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So we can fit any tragedy in these passages of scriptures. The point is, listen, repent. Come to Christ before an event happens like this in your life. Before death creeps up on you. Before you get killed in some way and in some manner that you weren't expecting. Be ready before that event. That's the point. Right? Because God may not rescue you from that event. Even if you're a believer, you may not be rescued from that event. Because that's not the finality of God's plan. But that's hard to wrap your mind around. That's the message. Listen, don't compare yourself with someone else that they're worse than you. No, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Because ultimately, are, aren't we all going to perish? Right? But see, it, it's what happens before you perish. And it's a lot more comforting to stand beside a coffin to somebody who knows the Lord and has lived the Christian life than someone you don't even know anything. You don't know where they're at. Right? I mean, you don't want to pray people into heaven, that's for sure. But the thing is that you, to have some confidence that they knew Christ is really very assuring, right? Of course, God is the ultimate judge in all those manners, in all those situations. But we, we need to be careful that unless we repent and obey the gospel of God, we will all likewise perish in our sins. So those who fear God and obey him should be mindful of judgment. But I want to say this too. There's no need to panic for those who know Christ. Judgment should not keep us in a panic mode. It really should allow us to rest in this, that God has made provision for us in Jesus Christ and has demonstrated his mercy time and time again on the cross, right? And that's the rest we have, that Christ took our place, and died in our place on the cross. He died the just for the unjust to bring us to God. That's what happened there. A.W. Tozer says, it is that through the work of Christ in atonement, justice is not violated, but satisfied when God spares a sinner. A just penalty for sin is eternal death. The just penalty was exacted. When Christ, our substitute, died on the cross, he bore that divine judgment. He was made a curse for us. 
and Christ was made sin for us. As Corinthians tells us, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God is just in forgiving any sinner who comes to him on the basis of Calvary. The cross fully satisfied the justice of God. So when it comes to judgment, Corinthians tells if we're going to boast, let's boast in what? In the Lord. Why? The Lord did it all. I didn't do anything. Christ did it all, so I'm going to boast in the cross. That's where I'm going to boast when it comes to judgment. As far as I'm concerned, I deserve judgment. I deserve eternal punishment. But because of Christ, who died in my place, I don't have to bear that judgment because he bore it for me on the cross completely, totally, finally, forever. And that's my great hope. So that should be our boast. We boast in the cross. Now, in light of that, there are several responses that should follow Scripture's teaching about judgment. And what are they? Well, the first one is simply this. Live your life in view of judgment. Ecclesiastes is telling us here, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good and evil. Solomon concluded in the book of Ecclesiastes with a warning to fear God and keep his commandments. And the reasoning is simple. Why? Because God's going to judge. So judgment should be an impetus for obedience. Right? That's the God fear. A second thing is this. Walk carefully toward the thin line between enjoyment and judgment. Does God want us? One thing we must realize, God is not a killjoy. Scripture admonishes us, listen, we're almost commanded to live, enjoy your life. Enjoy what you do. Enjoy what God's given you. Enjoy the food you eat. Enjoy the places that you go. Enjoy the home that you have. Enjoy the gifts that God has given you. Enjoy them. Matter of fact, but he invites us to enjoy them. And then at the same time, he warns us in our enjoyment. And I think this is really key because there is a fine line between enjoyment and judgment. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse number 9. This is where he gives that fine line. The admonition here is quite telling. Look what it says in verse 9 of Ecclesiastes 11. Verse number 9. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood. And then listen to what he says. And let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Now, what is he saying there? He's saying, listen, we all have impulses. We all have desires that we want in life. He's telling the young man to enjoy yourself. Pursue some of the impulses of your heart. Pursue some of the desires of your eyes. Not wrong to do that. That's the enjoyment part of life. But look at the second part of the verse. It says, yet know, look what it says in verse number 9, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. There it is right there. That's how we can keep balance 
between enjoyment and judgment that if we're going to pursue things, we have to also think about, is this pleasing to God? Is this something that is sinful? So you can and should enjoy life, but be careful that your desire for enjoyment, your desire for satisfaction, your desire for fulfillment does not lead you to sin. To live a a habitual, unrepentant, An unconfessed life of sin is dangerous. That's why Paul said to the Galatians, now here are the the deeds of the flesh. And they're very evident. You don't have to have any kind of degree to figure them out. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, drug taking. We can add that in there too carousing things like these he didn't even have he doesn't have to list all the sins we get sin and then he says this for i forewarn you just as have i forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of god so somebody who's saying that i can go on in my sinful practice and still claim to know christ as their lord and savior does not go together in Scripture. If your practice doesn't go with your profession, it may cancel out your profession and show you never were a child of God and you're not heading for heaven, you're heading for hell and God's judgment because of the way you live. See, so watch very carefully that you know the line between enjoyment and judgment. And then... In Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse number 11, don't allow judgment, judgment's delay to become a license to sin, for it says this, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men uh, among them are given fully to do evil. In other words, because God's not holding judgment right away, they go on to live as if there's no judgment because they haven't seen any. So they say, well, I'm going to live the way I want, and then I'll deal with it at the end. And, but for us, we, we, we should not allow the, the delay of judgment give us a license to sin. Uh, judgment's delay does not diminish its certainty. In fact, according to Scripture, God's patience will run out. On the day of judgment, his patience will run out. And then one, two other things as I conclude. I think we need to serve Christ as our defender in judgment. Uh, Let's face it, we're sinners and we're guilty as charged. Hebrews tells us, and in as much as it is appointed for men once to die and after this comes judgment, then it says this, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him, that Christ is my defender every day in judgment. A second thing is that if God would keep a ledger of all our sins, who could stand before his judgment? Doesn't, 
it say in Psalms 130, verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? No one would be able to stand. We can only stand because Christ is our defender. He's our sin bearer. And the best response that we can possibly have uh, when it comes to God being our defender is uh, in judgment is fear. Not only in Psalm 130, but right here in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, it says, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments. So, see, in Psalm 130, it says, but there is forgiveness with you that, we may be, that you may be feared. The kind of fear he's talking about here causes you to worship and not serve God with your hands dropped in anguish. To worship God. To enjoy God. Because of what he's done. So really, judgment is a great motivator to live obediently. Right? God rescued me from that. Why wouldn't I want to serve him? Why wouldn't I want to give him my best? Why wouldn't I want to persevere to the end? Right? Because God's done this great thing. He's rescued me from this judgment. And then one last thought is this. Judgment will never be a comfortable thought. Not, not for, it's not a comfortable thought for the believer. It's not a comfortable thought, especially for the unbeliever, if they understand really what it is. It's never going to be a comfortable thought. But God has arranged the day for all to be judged. I think if we remind ourselves of judgment, it can help us. And I believe that if, if, if we are obedient, we should look forward to reward because God promised it in Scripture. And then I think also that we need to find the line between enjoying life and walking obediently and live there. That's the narrow path. So judgment can serve to force us into a life of obedience in a good way, not in a, a bad way. And then also we don't have to let judgment's delay deceive us as if it's never going to happen. It is coming. It's coming. It's coming someday. See, the question is, are you ready is Christ your substitute is Christ your sin bearer so the two major points found in Ecclesiastes is simply this find God early in your life fear God throughout your life right that's really what he's saying in Ecclesiastes and he's, he's saying it to the young person specifically when you're young Start serving God because you're going to grow old someday. And if you lived your life in the fear of God and obeyed him, and of course now with the New Testament teaching of Christ as your sin bearer, as you're the one who takes the judgment of God, who dies in your place, who rises from the grave, who, who's ascended into heaven, uh, who's seated at the right hand of the Father, who's coming again, not for our judgment in the sense of, sin but to prepare a place for us uh, so we can live with him forever even though we know that christians will be judged based on their work after they become believers but not 
work on, not unto condemnation, but to loss or reward. That's the difference. So this, this kind of judgment all believers have been rescued from because of Jesus Christ. And that's, again, that's our great hope. I've been thinking about those things with the death of my father. And uh, it just rings more, tr- it m- rings truer than ever that the word of God is the word of God. And we can trust it with all our heart. And we can trust God who's given it to us and the character that he's given it to us in and rest in that. And you know what? We can rest there without all the answers to the questions. We don't have to have all the answers to our questions. Right? We don't. Because God just trusting his character is, is enough. So let's pray. Lord, I do thank you today um, in the midst of all the distractions that have taken place today flooding of our the basement of the church and of many people who could not get here because of the area being flooded and lord just uh other things that took place i I just pray lord that you would just take your word and and lord drive it home to our hearts Uh, especially look a subject as as sobering as this one that lord there would be no person here this morning who would not think of their own uh, ending of, of life. I just pray, Lord, that they too would realize that unless they repent of their sin and come to Christ as their Lord and Savior, uh, someday they will perish and stand before God's judgment. I pray, Lord, that they would know you and be rescued from the wrath of God And if not, Lord Jesus, uh, I pray that you would not leave them alone until they come to that place where they call upon you in repentance and faith and believe in you with all their heart. And that, Lord, you came to seek and to save that which is lost. And if they're lost, Lord, please find them and bring them to yourself. For all those who know you, Lord, help us to enjoy our life, find that line between enjoyment and uh, judgment. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would learn to fear God in, in a way which we humbly worship you. We humbly desire to obey your word. We want you to be exalted in our life. We want your word to reign. We want others to come to Christ. We want uh, others to be sanctified and grow in likeness. Lord, please do that through us. And Lord, bless the rest of our day and use it to bring glory to your name. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. Mm-hmm.